Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is John Steele Gordon. Mr. Gordon is an independent author and historian who specializes in business and financial history. His first book, Overlanding, was the result of a nine-month, 39,000-mile journey from New York to Chile. He has written several books on American financial history, and his articles have been published in Forbes, The New York Times, and other outlets. In this episode, Mr. Gordon discusses his latest book, Washington's Monument, and the fascinating history of the obelisk. And now, Mr. Gordon and Dr. Bradburn. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, I'm Doug Bradburn. I'm the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library here at beautiful Mount Vernon, and I'm delighted to be joined by well-known author John Steele Gordon today. Welcome to Mount Vernon. Well, thank you. I'm very glad to be here. So we had you last night to speak to a group about your latest book, uh, uh, Washington's Monument. Talk a little bit about uh, that book. Well, Washington's Monument is a history of the of the Washington Monument, uh, which is a singular monument in, in Washington. It's unlike any other structure in Washington or basically almost around the world. There are other obelisks. Um, you know, the Battle of San Jacinto is, um, has a great big obelisk, and, and many 19th century robber barons are buried beneath obelisks. Um, but the Washington Monument is like no other obelisk on, on yeah. Earth. It's twice as big as any other. And um, it's just a remarkable structure. And I also I went into the history of obelisks in general, how the yeah. Egyptians built them and how the Romans stole them and how we stole one, which is now in Central Park. Well, the Egyptians gave it to us, but they were sort of encouraged to do so. Yeah, well, well so we'll talk about that, that, all that, uh, all the details, the great details of the, of the obelisk trade. So you're known as a financial historian or an economic historian, a popular economic historian. What drew you to this uh, other sort of more quirky uh, topic? Well, I've always been interested in obelisks because um, there's, they were in Egyptian times and even today so spectacularly expensive to, to create and to move and to erect. Um, and yet they serve no function whatsoever. I mean, it's not like a battleship you can go out and beat up somebody. It just sits there and looks <laughs> impressive. And I was wondering, you know, why would pharaohs go to that enormous expense? Mm. And so in that aspect, it was an economic question. Yeah. Um, and I really think the reason they did was they would just to prove just how rich they were. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. you know, if I can afford to waste this much money, you guys better look out. Yeah, the power to create uh, the absurd. Yeah, this is sort of the Ozymandias effect. Look on my worksheet, mighty and despair. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that is, that, well, that's a depressing sideline uh, for sure. All these uh, obelisks that are intended to speak to what? The divine? Uh, to... Uh, we're not really sure yeah. because, you know, we only know what the Egyptians wrote down. And, of course, every historian will tell you how annoyed they are when people in the past didn't write down what they would like to know. <laughs> um, and, you know, the Egyptians, they never wrote down how they embalmed people. Right. Yeah. Um, or at least we have they, they didn't. I thought they were, we knew that, like through the nose, right? You, well, they, we have, we have <laughs> ideas, um, but they never did it exactly. What they did do, however, was they wrote down a meticulous 
uh, recipe, if that's the word, for embalming a bull. Mm. <laughs> Uh, because And the reason, of course, was human embalming was so common that it was taught by the apprentice method, so it never had to be written down. But the Apis bull, who was the bull sacred to the bull god, mm. and they would go out and they'd have this bull, and he would live this life of bovine luxury until he finally <laughs> died of old age. And that might be 30 or 40 years. And so they had to write down, how do you, uh, how do you embalm a bull? That's amazing. <laughs> Uh, well, so you got your start uh, uh, in writing uh, right from the start. You were a journalist? What was your background? No, I, after I graduated from college, I went to work at Harper and Row, now Harper Collins, okay. as a copy editor All right. um, and production editor. I mean, I would hand, get handed the manuscript, and yeah. then I would see that it got copy edited and proofread and, and designed and everything, and then I would hand back the editor a finished book. So you got to see how the sausage was made from the inside out. Indeed. I also learned how to spell and punctuate. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you were drawn to publishing because you wanted to be a writer, or you just like to read? or um, I sort of fell into it. I, my yeah. whole career is basically um, stumbling into good luck. Uh-huh. I mean, my family had friends... Um, Joan Kahn, who was the mystery editor at Harper, okay. and after I graduated, I went to her and says, you know, is there any jobs at Harper? And then mm-hmm. I got a job at $90 a week gross. Yeah. Um, well, and after copy editing other people's work, you decided, well, I can do this. Why, why would I want to copy edit someone else's work? Yeah, well, first I went and I, <laughs> I traveled for a year. Yes. Um, I, I drove a Land Rover down to Tierra del Fuego yeah. and as far back as Rio, and then I, I flew from home from from Rio. I went to Brasilia and then flew to Belém, took a boat up the Amazon to Manaus, and then flew home from Manaus. What was the inspiration for that, uh, the great adventure? Well, I've always loved to travel. The, my mm. family has a, a severe case of, of wanderlust. Mm. And um, I remember once when I was, you know, 16, 17 years, somebody gave my grandparents the London Times Atlas. Yeah. And um, my grandmother was looking through it. And then she said, here's a place we've never been. It was Sikiang in northwest China, <laughs> um, which in the 18 or 1960s would, you know, I don't think the Chinese would have been very happy to have you show up there. Uh, <laughs> and so I've been... It's still very hard to travel in China for the uh, uninitiated, I think. But, yeah. I think it is outside the big eastern cities. I think one further mm-hmm. west you get, the, the tougher it is and, and the less happy they are about you being there. Um, so anyway, I went, my, in 1970, I took three months off in the summer and went from, um, drove from London to India and back. Really? Yeah. And I wouldn't... In 1970? 1970. How do you get to India? I guess you can go around the Iron Curtain at that point, right? I mean, yeah, we went through, the, um, through Germany Turkey. and then through Yugoslavia and then okay. Bulgaria mm-hmm. and then Turkey and Iran and Afghanistan, okay. Pakistan and India. And then, yeah, and in seventy you could travel in Iran with no problem. Oh, it was a Shah was in. It was yeah. it was a very Western. Afghanistan was still stable then as well. It was it was Soviet stable still under the king. Yeah, um, right. Wretchedly poor. Yeah. Um, and very. I mean, the it was interesting as you further east you go, the more the women are constrained as to what they could wear. Mm-hmm. And in Afghanistan mm-hmm. they were covered in burqas with, with only this netting that yeah. they could just enough to avoid walking into walls. And that was the fir- first time you were aware of that uh, world, or was this yes. in your brain? Yes, I, mean, I was aware somewhere? of it in, in theory, but yeah. I'd never encountered anything remotely. How like many it. languages do you have? Um, besides English, French after a fashion. Mm-hmm. Did you have that then, in uh, 1970? Were you 
I've, I've spoken better French then than I do now because yeah. of, you know, lack of use. Yeah. Right. And I learned some Spanish in, in South America, but mostly it was automobile yeah. Spanish. Yeah. You know, so I could go tell a mechanic what was wrong. Coche's broke it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's a, I mean, that's an, I, I'm astonished by that. Uh, that I mean, I see that as, um, you know, just going off into there, like, you know, and without speaking the languages and driving through these areas. I mean, that's amazing to me. Well, you know, you find it just no big deal. They find you as exotic as you find them, yeah. uh, and so they're very yeah. curious and, mm -hmm. and, um, and very helpful. They, you know, people love to help strangers for the yeah. most part. Yeah. All right, so you so that trip, so you went to India and back. Uh, so did you just hit India and then turn around, or where did you go in India? Because that's a pretty we went to um, spot. New Delhi and then Agra for the Taj Mahal. Mm -hmm. Of course, you can't go to India without going to the world's most beautiful building. Mm. And then we drove up to Kashmir. And then we hiked up through the Himalayas mm. um, on horseback. I mean, so the, the horses did the walking. <laughs> but, um, and it was, it was uh, the thing that struck me most, other than the, the wild beauty of, of, of Kashmir, was that it cost $2 a day to hire a guy to take care of the horse. Mm. It cost $4 a day to rent the horse. In other words, the horse was <laughs> twice as expensive as the human being who took mm -hmm. care of the horse. Amazing. Now, did you write on that trip as well, or or, or not? Well, I, I wrote sort a, of reference. Right. In I wrote a book called Overlanding, yeah. um, which is how to travel. It's not, it wasn't about my travels yeah. particularly. Mm. Um, it was about how to do that kind of travel. How to what you need to take with you, what papers you need to cross borders, ah, okay. what what you should not take, like guns, because yeah. uh, <laughs> you won't get across the Mexican border with them. For mm. one thing, they'll mm. they'll be in the Mexican border guard's house in half an hour. <laughs> Um, and you know what you need in a medical kit and, and and stuff like that. And did you learn by doing the wrong things, or did you know this all? You know, well, I, the India out. trip was a was a commercial trip. It was you know there were two Land Rovers and there were twelve of us, and mm. and um, and so I learned a lot there. So by the time I because you were well, a paying member of some journey. Yes, right. I see. Okay. And then I did it on my own to, to South America, mm -hmm. and I I didn't have too many unpleasant um, surprises. Yeah. Well. Um, well, fascinating. So, all right. Well, wait, wait a second, though, because we still haven't gotten to when you you start writing. Then, so you right. So anyway, I <laughs> I come back. I write overlanding. Right. And okay. then I went to work for. Um, and you knew when you did overlanding that ah, Mark Twain travel writing. That's what I'm going to. Do. Yeah. Well, this this is more a how-to book rather than mm -hmm. a memoir. So okay. Um, right. Yeah. And but it, you have such a great sense of humor. I would think that you know, Innocence Abroad would be more your approach. Well, I, there are there are a couple of, of jokes in Overlanding about catching a tinamou because they got they're very curious birds, and it, there was a pot, yeah. and the tinamou landed on the rim of the pot, and its weight just turned it over, and the so the tinamou was under the pot. Oh, fascinating! Yeah. And uh, we could have, <laughs> of course, had roast tinamou for dinner, but we didn't. We just let the poor bird out. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah. Anyway, so then I went to work, and this is 1976, I went to work for um, the Mo Udall campaign. Okay, sure. And then I got... Um, for governor? No, he was running for president at that point. Well, um, Democratic. There you go. Um, he was a congressman from, yeah. congressman from um, what was it, Arizona. And, um, he didn't win. No, he did not. <laughs> um, he did pretty good, though. Yeah. He, you know, yeah. he was, you know, that was a huge feel that year in the Democratic Party. Yes, right. And um, he came in like third, mm -hmm. um, quite respectable. It was a major campaign. I learned a lot about politics and about campaigning. Mm -hmm. And then I went to work for Herman Medeo, who was a um, 
congressman from the Bronx and had run for mayor mm-hmm. and um, as his New York press secretary, okay. which was a wonderful job because there was almost everything was done in Washington, and they would just send stuff up to me, you know, press release and stuff, and I'd go around and, and um, uh, distribute them. But mm-hmm. other than that, I really had nothing to do. Mm-hmm. And so I would go over to the New York Public Library, which is about three blocks away, and, and started writing. Mm-hmm. And I wrote about um, the blizzard of 88 and the sinking of the general, um, forget his name, the um, ship that went down in, in, in off um, North Brother Island yeah, in about 1904. It was a huge, over a thousand people were drowned. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And there was nothing, people by the thousands were lined up on the shore watching it, but there was absolutely nothing they could do. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a great tragedy. Um, and then I wanted to write about the gold panic which was in September of 1869. It was probably the single most exciting day in the history of Wall Street, mm. which has had its share of exciting what days. What drew you to stories of, of financial panic and collapse and, and yeah. that sort of thing? And I was fortunate that my grandfather, Gordon, was a, was a broker. Okay. And he was a member of the New York Stock Exchange for many, many years. And he used to tell me these wonderful stories about his adventures on Wall Street and what he had mm. seen, because he first went to the street in 1898 when he was 16 years old. Wow. And last saw it in 1974 when he was well over 90. And That's amazing. Yeah. And so he saw a lot of Wall Street history, and he, he knew a lot. Of, he loved history. Um, Not typical for your Wall Street broker, is it? Oh, I think you know, a lot of them are a lot smarter and, and more learned than you would expect. Well, I mean, some smart. of them aren't. Smart, um, yeah. yeah but, but no, he, he loved... Um, huh. Loved history. He, he so he knew J.P. Morgan then. I uh, probably didn't know him personally, but, but he, he certainly see him, like he'd showing up see him with a cape or something. And he told me one story about, about walking into the Chemical Bank on Broadway one morning, and coming in ahead of them was this old lady, shabbily dressed, and he was wondering what what is she doing in a bank? Mm. And she walked in, and everybody in the bank stood up. It was Hetty Green. The famous witch yeah. of Wall Street, who yeah. you know, was a famous miser, a real miser. She just spending money was just agonizing for her, and she was, you know, she was worth a hundred million dollars in you know nineteen ten. Extraordinary. Um, so, and he told me, you know, the panic of nineteen oh one when there was an accidental corner in Northern Pacific um, Railroad when both James J J Hill and, and um, Harriman were Edward Harriman were trying to um, get control of the Northern Pacific, and they. Yeah ended up buying more than 100% of the common stock mm. because the shorts were selling them. They thought this, you know, this stock has got to go down. After it became a corner, the shorts were panicked mm. because, you know, the old saying, you know, he who buy, or he who sells what isn't his and buys it back or goes to prison. <laughs> and, you know, so they had sold yeah. this stock they didn't own, figuring out a fall in the price. Right. And suddenly right. there was no stock to buy and the price just went through the roof. Mm. And this was ma- there a margin call coming, or did that? Uh, you can't sell on margin. Oh, okay. Um, anyway, the, in the height of this panic, when it was just all hell breaking loose on the floor of the exchange, um, this man who had been up in the Adirondacks, very rich man, came down in his private car to Grand Central, got into a handsome cab, and drove down to Wall Street. He was a member of the exchange, so he could walk onto the floor and saw all this going on at the post for Northern Pacific, and he said, what's going on? Mm. They said, there's a, there's a panic. The price has gone up above $1,000 a share. Mm. And he says, 
I own 10,000 shares of Northern Pacific. Wow. Whereupon the shorts <laughs> descended upon him. <laughs> and they lit- the exchange literally had to rustle up a blanket so the guy could get home. They just tore his clothes off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> on the other hand, he got a terrific price I for his bet. Northern Pacific stock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's extraordinary. Yeah. So anyway, I, was, I, w- I wanted to write about the gold panic. And yeah. so I went to the New York Public Library. And the time they still had the card catalog was actually cards. Yeah. And um, I wanted to see what books had been written about the Erie Wars, which was fight for the control of the Erie Railway. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was astonished to discover that the last book written on the Erie Wars had been published in 1871 <laughs> by Charles Francis Adams and Henry Adams, oh, um, called Chapters of Erie. <laughs> and of course, the Erie Wars were still going on in 1871. Yeah. And so I immediately said, okay, I'm going to write that book. Yeah. And I was fortunate because I, having grown up with my grandfather, I you know I knew what selling short meant before yeah, I was right. ride a bicycle. Well, that's uh, helpful. Uh, very helpful. <laughs> Clearly, I, I didn't. I was very. I was. I was, it took me a long time to learn to ride a bicycle. I'm very clumsy. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so I wrote that book. Called well, I think you also kind of instinctively understood how to make those stories dramatic. You know, it seems. Like yeah. Well, it turned out I, I have a a gift, I guess, for explaining financial things in terms that. Yeah. Non-financial people can understand, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. and so anyway, the book was published in 1988, and um, called "The Scarlet Woman of Wall Street." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that was the name Charles Francis Adams gave to the Erie Railway because the stock had broken the hearts of so many investors. <laughs> that, um, <laughs> and then, um, very fortunate, a man named uh, Richard Snow, who was then the um, managing editor of American Heritage, happened mm-hmm. to read the book, mm-hmm. and. In the beginning of the book, I had a note on money and time, because one of the most intractable problems in history is what was a sum of money in 1860? What is it worth in today's money? And there really is no simple answer. People often just use the consumer price index to to get rid of the inflation. But a lot of things in 1860 were dirt cheap, like servants, um, and other things were... It doesn't get you to the quality of life... uh, that could be afforded. I mean, we have the same problem in the colonial period. We, you know, I'm a good friend of John McCusker who's written that, you know, right, what is the worth of real money book for the Yeah, 18th and it's, it's, you really have to then sort of like work your way through it. First says it's really, a, you know, there's not easy equivalents. You know, yeah. So you gotta, it so depends. I mean, you know, yeah. music was very expensive in 1860 because right. you basically had to make it yourself. <laughs> um, that's and then, yeah. you know, but today we have... But, yeah, but servants were very cheap. Yeah. Servants were very cheap, you know, $5 <laughs> yeah. a week in the yeah. horrible room up in the attic. Yeah. And um, and nowadays, servants are very expensive, and, and music, and is, music is dirt cheap. <laughs> I mean, you can, and yeah. we can do things that the 1860s would have boggled at. You know, you want to hear Judy Garland sing Over the Rainbow? No problem. <laughs> Even though she's been dead for 50 years. <laughs> and yeah. anyway, so... American Heritage had been looking for years to find somebody to write on this story, and yeah. they'd gone to a bunch of academics who would, would turn in, you know, stuff that was simply not for the popular. Oh right, right. Uh, so right on the audience. question of like valuing things. Yeah, and they right. would get they'd get lost in the economic weeds and, right. and stuff. Right. So anyway, they hired me to do that, and it was a cover story. Yeah. And then they hired me to be their um, write the column, the business of America, which is basic 
you know, business history. Yeah. And so well, I, that grew into the next, the, well, not maybe not the next book, but that would grow into a, the, the, the Empire book? Uh, well, eventually. Yeah. And also, they in, in 2001, they published a collection of those columns, okay. um, which see. is my favorite book, so I didn't have to write it. <laughs> it was already written. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, then, I mean, the American Heritage Magazine is a real loss for popular history writing. I mean, it, it is indeed. It, you know, it, um, it was, I mean, everybody is anybody wrote in there and uh, and it was very popular and uh, and, and no, no no longer it never made money or hardly ever magazines don't do they i mean not I, today the magazine business magazine is a shadow so you never make money yeah, well i mean forbes yeah. used to be a cash cow mm. um and mm. you know and malcolm forbes had this 300 foot yacht and <laughs> You know what have you? Um, I was on it once. Very nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, but now Forbes is still profitable, yeah. but it's nowhere near as profitable as it was. And you, right. you, know, you can judge a magazine by just simply weighing it. Yeah, and magazines right. are getting thinner and thinner because there's just so much competition for the advertising. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, well, American Heritage is now a nonprofit educational institution. Uh, all that content's owned by American Heritage. What org or now Ed Grosvenor is the Ed Grosvenor is he yeah. bought it for virtually nothing from yeah. Forbes and he more or less gave it to him yeah. uh, but it's no longer published you can go online fortunately because I have all that stuff in there right and I can uh, that those I own those copyrights so yeah. I can just go in there and grab well, that's good. the stuff that I need so. now you and you write for Barron's now I write after American Heritage more or less folded um, Barron's came to me and asked me if I'd write a column for them mm -hmm. um, the same called the long view but it's basically the same thing it's more I can, it's a wider field because I can write about any kind of economic history yeah. rather than in American heritage it had to have to be something to do with America. America. <laughs> uh, it wasn't just called heritage after all. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I've, I've written on who was the richest man in the world. Um, it was this guy who was um, from Timbuktu, actually. It was his capital. <laughs> and he, you know, again, if you figure it out, he... Forbes estimated that he was worth four hundred billion dollars. Okay, so was this like what fourteen fifty yeah, or something? Yeah, um, in the late fourteenth, um, early fifteenth century. You, you say that as if that's a, oh, of course, yeah, the late fourteenth, early fifteenth century. That's and he made a great <laughs> pilgrimage to Back Mecca. In the glory days of Timbuktu. Yeah. It was the glory days yeah. of Timbuktu. They had a library. They, they had, had the um, famous library there. Yeah, exactly. They, it's it's because it's the major trading post over the Sahara, basically. Yeah, right? and it was. So um, it was in, very rich. Yeah, um, Sub-Saharan Africa, it's the major post for gold, ivory. Gold and salt. Um, salt salt yeah. was very cheap in, in Timbuktu yeah. and very expensive on the on the coast yeah. because the you know, wet wet climate doesn't form salt. When did Timbuktu become synonymous with way the hell away? You know? I don't know. Yeah, I don't um, know. It's got to be a 20th century. Or a 19th, like maybe. A funny song. You know, the, you know, there were many yeah. inveterate travelers in the 19th century. And I mean, you know, if you could put... <laughs> you could put a check mark next to Timbuktu. You were yeah. so. Tell me about this. So this rich man, this the richest man in the world. Well, he made a pilgrimage to Mecca. <laughs> How many billion did they say he was worth? Four hundred billion is their their <laughs> estimate. Uh, but again, that's you know it's a guesstimate at best. Sure. Um, yeah. Anyway, he he brought so much gold to Egypt on the way to mm -hmm. Mecca that he actually destabilized the Egyptian um, economy. Uh, yes. Mm. And you know, you know that's rich. Yeah, that is. That is, <laughs> is that, well, that, now is that true? That's what they say. They say that's what somebody says. I think about um, you know about this the effect of Spain uh, importing all this gold and silver from South America into Europe. That it had a you know 
destabilizing impact. Prices rose in Europe by a factor of about four in the 16th century. Yeah. And economic historians describe that almost entirely to the avalanche of gold and silver brought in from the New World. Right. Because, you know, in the 16th century, gold and silver was money. I mean, they didn't print it. Right. And that was a late 17th century invention. Right, so you're devaluing the money by having you, more you of know, it. You get more money with the same size economy. Inflation, the prices of everything. Yeah. I mean, the price of money goes down, right. um, and so the price of everything else goes up, right. and we call that inflation. So. And but in, and in, and the impact in in uh, the economies in Europe was uh, severe because in some cases you would have like 99 year leases and things like that. Right, I mean that they there were certain prices that wouldn't be changed by contract or by law for long stretches of time. And so if you have this sort of inflationary pressure happening in other areas, it's sort of destabilizing Indeed. All, all kinds of things from um, what the value people, of labor, the value of land, the value of agricultural products. Yeah, some people and, benefited, some people yeah. um, were severely impacted. The Black Death did the same thing. Right. It made labor much more expensive because there were fewer people yeah. um, to do the laboring. Yeah. And so they attended, that caused the breakdown of the surf um, serfdom, and, and so they were able to get their freedom from the land and stuff. So the Black Death was, you know, one third of Europe died. On the other hand, it probably was positive in the long sense. Yeah. Um, so do you think all great stories of historical change could be tied to demography and money? Probably not all of them. Well, come on, you're supposed to say yes, and that's what I write on, something like that. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, (laughs) the volcano volcano blows up, so that's not demography or money. um, I was just reading a great piece in the Smithsonian about the demise of the Vikings of Greenland, actually, and it starts with the volcano blowing up and Mm -hmm. climate effects from that. Uh, I've always been haunted by the, you know, imagine you're... The last, the la- well, Krakatoa also, but the, you're the last of the Greenlanders, yeah. and the people have stopped coming yeah. from Scandinavia, but and you're looking out over the sea, hoping to see a Viking the, ship. The, the problem, though, with the thesis that the Greenlanders are just sort of like there, and then they they diminish and disappear, is they're, they're, the villages that have been discovered have the doors shut, and they're nice and clean, and there's no like gold and silver and crosses or anything there. I mean, it's clear that people just left once it mm-hmm. became you know, not viable right. anymore. And, and you know, uh, they move they move back, basically. Uh, from whence or at they least came. to Iceland. Yeah, yeah, right, or to Iceland. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I think the dramatic, you know, sort of like we're the last Greenlanders uh, story is it's not as, I mean, maybe the last Easter Islanders, that, you know, had a, had a situation like that. Well, Easter Island's a fascinating story. Is that going to be a book by John Steele Gordon at some point? No, you need I, you need much more knowledge of anthropology than, oh. than I have. Oh, well, you you've written on so many different uh, subjects. Um, so, how did you come to the the uh, the obelisk books? You've always fascinated obelisks because there are these outrageous things and incredibly expensive. But that's not enough. What, what, what well, see, I've always loved technology as well as economics. I mean, I wrote a book called The Thread Across the Ocean about laying the Atlantic Cable in the 1850s and 60s and how they did it. It was was like going to Mars in the middle of the 19th century, this idea that you could string a cable 3,500 miles across the Atlantic and and shrink the time difference from at that time with steamships, it was around 10 days, to around 10 seconds, Um, which made an enormous difference. I mean, suddenly New York and London could... um, trade in the same market at the same time. I think it's really difficult for our modern brains to understand a world in which uh, distance and time were so much more powerful over what you could do and what you you knew was going on and everything. 
the Earth has shrunk yeah. incredibly um, in size in terms of, you know, this afternoon I'm going to be in Vail, Colorado. You know, <laughs> right you now go. I'm in yeah. Mount Vernon. Um, I mean, that was, you know, inconceivable to anybody who lived even, you know, 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, it's um, nice that you only go to the best places, though. I mean, that's well, I got invited, <laughs> so I'm going. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but um, also... You know, I can remember when I was, I've always loved the British royal family. Mm. I don't know why, I just find it fascinating. And when I was nine years old, Queen Elizabeth was crowned in Westminster. Mm. And they shot the movies of the coronation, and then they put it on an airplane and developed the film and edited the film on on the airplane as it crossed the Atlantic Ocean. And then they um, showed it the next day from New York. Mm. And I parked myself in front of the television set and watched the whole thing. Really? And my mother even had to bring lunch in to me because I refused flatly to go well, eat so, it. All right, so you don't know, you. Why, why are you fascinated with the royals? And here's this New York kid. Well, I, it's it's history, yeah. and it's, it's romantic yeah. history, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, kings and, and crowns and kings and castles. Crowns are, you know, and, there's you know, an atavistic yeah. love for royalty, yeah. even though there's hardly any royalty left anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but people, I mean, one-third of the world's people watched the marriage of yeah. the Diana, Duchess, Duke and Duchess of, of Cambridge and earlier oh, Charles yeah. and, and yeah. Diana. I mean, one-third of the yeah. population of the world. So do you watch The Crown? I've seen some of the episodes of it. I've not seen all of them. Well, you need to watch. Well, you got to watch the one where they film the uh, the coronation because you can relive your. Uh, okay, your, your, I, will, I didn't know they had one. I will certainly do. Well, that. because that's the first time that you're going to have cameras in there. And yeah, all the, that you know, the Queen overruled. Um, yeah. People said, "Oh, you can't have television in well, Westminster it, Abbey." And well, she said, "Oh, yes, you well, can." Well, there's a big theme in the show about uh, the role of mystery and majesty and uh, how. How, how much do you want to show and how much do you have to sort of keep the veil up so that you can retain the magic? Well, as know. Walter Badgett, the great um, yeah. 19th century economist, um, mm. said that you must not let too much light in upon magic. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. the sense of, uh, uh, particularly at that point where, uh, I mean, I guess we're at the point now as well, but this notion where the British Empire is breaking apart, the monarchy is seen as, you know, a ridiculous institution that's no it has no place in the modern world and so what is its place if you make it a human institution you really will you know turn it into a kind of a meaningless sort of thing you know? yeah but it still, it still retains its magic I it, think. yeah well yeah and i think it does well it does by and in, so, in part because the british uh, crown has done a good job sort of maintaining that well, the queen has been a the queen she's been a, a great monarch um, yeah. she's just been almost yeah. letter perfect yeah, we have uh, so Mount Vernon's first international partnership is with Windsor Castle and the Royal Collection Trust, in which they've opened this new archive of George III's private papers, uh-huh. uh, which is over three hundred fifty thousand items that most scholars haven't gone through. I mean, uh, uh, only fifteen percent of which has really been published and available up until this moment, where they're, uh-huh. they're digitizing this entire thing, and it's in the Round Tower. Uh, at Windsor. This is right up your alley. This you is bet. exactly the kind of yeah. thing because the Round Tower is itself sort of a 19th century invention of what a it castle. was George the Fourth. Yeah, really, yeah, yeah. Let's make a castle look like it's supposed to look. Right. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, but it basically was a useless part of the castle where they kept all these these boxes that the Duke of Wellington had collected together or had owned because mm-hmm. he was the executor of, of George the Fourth's estate and he sold off the, the uh, paintings and the uh, the statuary and all that. But he hung on to this these private papers until 
you know, they were made into the royal archives in the 20th century with amalgams from other castles and basically left there uh, in the round tower until the last few years where they're being opened up. So um, it's really a remarkable, a remarkable thing. And, the, and, um, and they don't exactly know everything that's in this trove yet, but um, well, I'm sure a lot of it's related to the American story. I'm sure they're going to find all kinds of wonderful things. That's yeah. one of the great things about doing original research yeah. is you stumble yeah. upon, you know, oh, wow. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I think that a lot of these personal stories of George III uh, will, will come out of this that will really change the way people think about him. He was, a, you know, he was, he was an interesting, he, he reigned for almost 60 years. The last yeah. 15 years he was insane. Um, he had 15 <laughs> children. Um, mm -hmm. He had a most un-Hanoverian yeah. idea of fidelity to his wife. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, he was right. probably the only Hanoverian monarch who was faithful to mm -hmm, his wife. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, in 1817, he had these 15 children. 1817, Princess Charlotte, the only child of George IV, then the Prince Regent, uh, she died in childbirth. Yeah. And yeah. suddenly, there were no legitimate grandchildren of George yeah. III. That's extraordinary. And so all of these princes who have been living with mistresses and stuff, they were instructed in no uncertain terms to go out and find a princess, marry her, and <laughs> produce children. And one of them, of course, was Queen Victoria. Yeah. Well, that worked out well as well. So the long-lived Queen Victoria. All right, well, let's get back to the Washington Monument. we got to talk about that before our, our time comes to an end. You have Veil to get to, and uh, and we're here at Mount Vernon, so let's get a little bit of George Washington in here. Uh, why uh, why a monument for George Washington? Well, he was recognized at the time as one of the great men of the world, not just America, but one of, in, he, he was thought of in Europe as this extraordinary mm -hmm. man. I mean, Lord Byron wrote about um, yeah. George Washington after the fall of Napoleon. Mm -hmm. um, he wrote, you know, where can the weary eye repose when gazing on the great? And the answer was Washington. Mm. And then he says, and to make men blush, there was but one. Mm. Yeah. And so that when they... The Brits, the liberal Brits in the 19th century loved George Washington. Indeed. The Whig, the old Whig, and then the, the liberal party. He was a hero to them. I mean, Gladstone he, he, famously he, talking about the U.S. Constitution as the most brilliant thing created by man in a short space of time. And... Uh, their colors for a long time were buff and blue. I mean, it was a real one part of Britain, you know, thought of Washington in that manner. Yeah, I think, and, you know, today there's a statue of George Washington in front of the National Gallery on Trafalgar Square. Yeah. The yeah. first time I saw it, I thought, if you'd ever been there in the flesh, they would have hanged him. <laughs> yeah, right. I like that, too, because it's kind of, and I, I don't think this was intended, but he's basically staring at Parliament down the, you know, down the road. There. Right. But that was part of the great uh, rapprochement or great uh, detente, a great reunion of the uh, United States and Britain in the early 20th century. Yeah, well, in, in, you know, in the late 1890s, when the United States um, was a rising power, rising yeah. as no power had ever risen yeah. before, yeah. and Germany was also a rising power, and Britain made a foreign policy decision, which was to be the best friend the United States ever had, mm -hmm. and, yeah. um, and very good thinking on their part, given yeah. the history of the 20th century. Well, a lot of those industrialists, uh, the late 19th century, loved that idea. I mean, Carnegie was a, obviously oh. a major I involved in, I mean, he was imagining a notion of a reunification of the Anglo-speaking world. Uh, Indeed. Uh, he, was, yeah. uh, he was a, um, 
There's a wonderful story about Carnegie when he was talking to King Edward VII, and they, he'd funded a dinosaur expedition out west, and they discovered this Diplodocus, hmm. which they named Diplodocus Carnegie for obvious reasons. He'd written a check. <laughs> and <clears throat> so Carnegie was telling the king about this wonderful dinosaur that had been named after him. And <laughs> so the king said, well, I'd love one of those for the British Museum. Hmm. And Carnegie said, no problem. I'll tell him, go out. So he told us, go find know, another. Go, go find another. And they said, you know, <laughs> Gee, Mr. Carnegie, it doesn't work that way. It's not like obelisks. You can't go out and build one. you got to find one. And so what they did is they made a plaster cast of the, yeah. the Diplodocus, which is in the um, Carnegie Mellon Museum in Pittsburgh. Amazing. And um, but I just love that. Oh, sure, I'll get you another Diplodocus. There was a guy, uh, I'm going to mess this up, but you might know. Um, there's a great a newspaper... You might call him a yellow journalist, but he's often called the father of the British tabloid journalism, Sneed, I think. W.C. Sneed? No, I don't know. Uh, friend of Carnegie's. He wrote a book called The Americanization of um, of the World in 1804. And uh, and actually, Sneed died on the Titanic going to uh, the Carnegie Peace Institute uh, it, it, uh, in, whatever, in 1912. He was no. on his way to the Carnegie Hall for this little world peace thing. And their whole notion was that uh, the reunion, well, and Sneed's argument, and he quotes Carnegie throughout, and, uh, and uh, is that if the, you know, the 19th century had just seen the reunification of German-speaking peoples and the creation of this German nation, it had just seen the creation of these nations around language affinities, we need to reunify the, you know, the British Empire and the United States into the greatest world power ever seen because it would assure world peace. That that route to world peace would be through this unified kind of uh, system that of laws. That was too powerful to um, yeah. Yeah. get up anywhere. Well, right. It's too powerful, over overpowering, also to able to extend power, but also with the shared language and principles. And, you know, uh, and, and Carnegie was quoted in that uh, book as saying, you know, I don't see any reason why Scotland can't send uh, ministers to Washington rather than Westminster. You know? And this idea that you know, we're going to have Washington the capital of this Anglo-speaking uh, thing anyway, so uh, this was sort of the, the, you know, obviously this was sort of a um, an idea of the late nineteenth, early twentieth century that evolved in different ways. But these guys were all friends of Churchill, and when he later on is um, referencing the special relationship and and uh, in his speech to, um, well, the speech to Harvard in, in forty three, but then the speech at uh, you know at Truman College, not no at Westminster what? College. Uh, in, in uh, you know, but the Iron Curtain speech. Well, Washington University in St. Louis. I thought it was a Westminster College in somewhere in the middle of nowhere in uh, in uh, Missouri. Anyway, uh, they, the Google can find out. Right. Um, um, any, at any rate, so he's kind of reflecting back, uh, back this whole notion of world peace through Anglo-American, you know. Well, I mean, Churchill at the after Pearl Harbor when Churchill came over yeah. to Washington to stay three weeks um, or even more. And um, Eleanor mm. Roosevelt was a little tired of her house guests by that point yeah. with his cigars and his drinking and stuff. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> but he actually suggested that Britain and the United States establish a common citizenship. Yes. Yeah, and that's right. That went absolutely nowhere. It was but, really controversial when it was heard. Oh yeah, actually. and yeah. It was, you know the United States <laughs> is more protective of its sovereignty than any other country, yeah. um, having to fight so hard to obtain it. And um, so that was a non-starter, mm. but. Um, all right, so let's get back to George Washington's monument. Great man, beloved around the world, or at least seen as a great leader, um, and, and of course in the United States. Uh, 
where did the idea come to build the giant obelisk? Why an obelisk? It, well, it came from uh, Robert Mills, who was the architect. I mean, is it actually an obelisk if it's built? I mean, no, it's, it's technically it is obelisk shaped. Okay, a, okay. a true obelisk has to be monolithic, <laughs> which is just Greek for one stone. Right. Okay. And um, <laughs> anyway, he, Robert Mills was a competent architect. I mean, the Treasury Building is his work, and the National Patent Office, now part of the Smithsonian, mm -hmm. is his work. And they're you know they're good solid stuff. But as he got fancier, he tended to sort of add layer upon layer. So this was an Egyptian obelisk surrounded by a Greco-Latin um, pantheon, circular. Yeah. And um, the pantheon never got built, um, fortunately. I mean, so that design, it, at that time, were they already using sort of the obelisk in funerary uh, in memorials, uh, like small-scale monuments in graveyards and that sort I of thing? I believe they were. I mean, the 19th century was the great era of obelisks. I mean, if you go to yeah, you know, Greenwood right. Cemetery in yeah. Brooklyn, for instance, it absolutely bristles with obelisks. Yeah, right. Um, well, and there's, there's two here at the tomb of George Washington as well. Yeah, and they mark yeah. things with obelisks. I mean, an obelisk has always said, you know, silent as always, only stone can be. Right. It still says something important yeah. happened here. Yeah. And, you know, for instance, the point at which the whole Northwest um, Territory was mapped, mm. you know, the original site from which the, the, all the um, yeah. um, so like a surveying mark went on. There's a marker. Yeah. That, that's an obelisk. Now, it's only about this tall and it's distinctly um, squat. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it's still an obelisk. Yeah, the, the pyramidal so, shape on the top has some kind of yeah. potency. Yeah. And they... Because um, it's not just a shaft. It's not just a phallic, you know... Shaft. No, no, it's very it's precise. Point. It comes to a point. Yeah. And um, the, we think that the Egyptians, you know, it was to catch the first rays of the sun, because the sun was the center point of Egyptian religion. Right. And so this is the rising sun, and boy, we, we can't see it from the ground quite yet, but you can see the sun is rising because yeah. it's gleaming off the top of the obelisk. Well, and you mentioned the one that was stolen by the Romans and that became a big uh, sundial. Uh, yes, it became know, the nomen the of the point is sundial. really useful when you're trying to tell time. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't want a big blob, you want an actual... Yeah, and if it hadn't point. shifted, um, yeah. it would still be um, <laughs> and perfectly accurate, as accurate as sundials get. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, yeah, they're actually pretty accurate. Yeah. Um, okay, so Mills has this extraordinary design, and uh, but that's not what we have. We have a, an obelisk shape. Yeah. There's no Greco-Roman uh, pantheon around it. No, and, we got, and they had to build the obelisk first. Mm -hmm. And then they could build the Pantheon around it. But the Washington Monument Society always had terrible money problems. They were always desperately trying to raise money with one scheme after another. None of them worked, um, at least not nearly sufficiently. And um, it's not <coughs> a uniquely American model to have this sort of private group build some big state memorial uh, like that. Or oh yes, it's that's yeah. very American. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I, I can't think of an example in Europe. Yeah, um, certainly nothing of the size of the Washington Monument. Yeah, like a triumphal arches that are built in Europe in the 18th century. I mean, those are all state projects. Sure, the the Arc de Triomphe in Paris was built by Napoleon to mm -hmm. you know tell everybody how great he was. Yeah, and um, so Washington anyway, they, was too humble for that. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, there was no money. <laughs> Plus, there was no money. So, and anyway, well, Napoleon Congress didn't have any money either. So. He just did it. <laughs> Congress didn't want to spend any money, right. and right. so they were trying to raise it privately, and they got enough to start. Mm -hmm. And, and then they ran out of money, and then they got taken over by a bunch of basically political crazies called the Know-Nothings. Um, this, really, <coughs> this is really funny. Talk about, how did the Know-Nothings take over the Washington Monument? Uh, well, because the society was informal in that it 
it didn't have a charter from the government. And so they really, they, they couldn't, if they'd been a, a, a real organization with they a charter. They not a corporation at all? It was not incorporated. Really? So they couldn't sue. Yeah. Because they right. didn't, they, they had no property they, rights. They, they couldn't sue. Yeah, they, yeah. And, and that's so, a dangerous thing to do when you're raising money, but you're not incorporated. Yes. Well, it was, it was <laughs> informal in those days. America. And, you know, <laughs> you know, and they and they were, you know, these are the cream of the society of Washington at that time. So they weren't going right, to be. I saw like Franklin Pierce was the president at some point, right? I mean, well, he was. He was. He that's was, later. The, the president was the, always um, oh, the an honorary honorary kind of, chairman of the. Washington Monument Society. The first one was John Marshall, and then he died very quickly. And then they made James Madison the head, and he died very quickly. And after that, they made the the president, um, whoever was president, was the um, official chairman of the thing. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, the Civil War comes along, no money. You know, people had other things to do during the Civil War than build monuments. And then in 1876, the bicentennial, the centennial, I mean, um, Congress was finally embarrassed. They could either tear this stump down, yeah. or they could finish it, or they could just leave it. Well, tearing it down would have cost as much money as finishing it, so they said, go ahead and finish it, but don't spend a dime more than you have to. Now, a sensationalist historian would talk about the symbolism of the unfinished monument and the unfinished nation, and it's going to finish after, but you're not that type of historian. You don't make that kind of point, do you? Not explicitly, no. no. I think it's, <laughs> you know, it's implicit that they had to do something. Yeah. And the, you know, the centennial was a great... Era. I mean, a lot of change yeah. in the centennial. I mean, they had this huge exhibit in, in Philadelphia, the Centennial Exhibition, um, powered by the largest steam engine ever built. Mm. Um, an era, you know, the end of the steam era was clearly coming. Electricity would start, you know, just about that time, actually. Um, and and also there was suddenly there was this revival of interest in, in furniture. Until yeah. the 1870s, we had old furniture and we had new furniture. And when the old furniture went out of style, it got sent up to the servants' quarters, and they brought in the new furniture. Right. Suddenly, in the 1870s, they started talking about antiques, mm. and suddenly the old furniture could be valuable and admired. Yeah. And so that's when they started building, you know, making you know, called centennial pieces, Chippendale chairs that are, you know, yeah, were made the, in the 1870s, but yeah, looked like yeah. like the 1770s. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, well, it struck me that that, that period, it's sort of that strange dichotomy between them, the, the ultra, I mean, the, the modern technology of, and the power and the communications and the transportation uh, revolutions of, you know, are, are really taking off in industrial America. But yet at the same time, yeah, you get the growth of, the, you know, the um, this sort of celebration of the, the colonial, the Tudor, you know, all these old-fashioned, uh, now-gone styles. Well, of course, the... The centennial made us look back at the beginning, yeah. and no figure loomed larger. They did this in Britain too. I mean, in the late nineteenth century, right? I mean, you had, with the well, medieval. I think, it's, I think I, 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 there was a new all the medieval, you know, rediscovery and all the neo-gothic stuff and all that. Well, yeah, well they'd also they, you know, they, <laughs> they, well, of course, the eighteenth century was the, the height of neo, um, colonial, yeah, neo, right. um, neo yeah, classical, classical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, right. and then you know, gothic had its period, and actually, Egypt um, after the um, yeah. Champollion translated right. the hieroglyphics, right. uh, suddenly there was this you know, all of a sudden Egyptian dress came into at least what they thought was Egyptian dress, <laughs> and um, the yeah. the tomb or the 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 um, <coughs> the jail in Manhattan which was built in the 1840s at the height of, of Egyptomania, it was called, huh. um, 
was no, and so it was built in the Egyptian style, of, you know, the original the one was, and it was called the, the Tombs. Okay. And, yeah, right, you know, of course, yeah. The, um, yeah. the Manhattan cling to this day is known as the Tombs, yeah. even though the building is long gone. Oh, it doesn't look a bit Egyptian, but it's still called the Tombs. Oh, that's great. That's great. All right, and so the, the Washington Monument gets finished then in the 1870s? Well, they started it. They hired Thomas Casey, a very competent um, Army Corps of Engineers um, official or officer, Mm-hmm. And um, and he got it done. Uh, he was very careful about spending money. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually asked the Treasury if it would be all right to provide coffee for the workers 500 feet up mm-hmm. in the air as they were finishing it in the middle of winter. Wow. And and the Treasury said, okay, you can, you can do that. <laughs> it would be better if they said yeah. no. Coffee, coffee <laughs> cost about 10 cents a pound in, in the 1880s. Yeah. Um, so he was he was very penny. Well, that's what we like in our government contractors, you know, yeah. strict and uh, yeah, cheap. And and so they they got it. They had to rebuild the foundation, which was not easy, given the fact that there were thirty thousand tons of stone on top of it already. Mm. Um, and then they they built it. And unfortunately, they they used a, another quarry. It was in the same um, same run of. of of stone, but it was a different quarry, and the stone was slightly different color. Mm. And you can see that to this day, the bottom 155 I mean, feet. You see that right away. And yeah, then, but there was say, nothing to do well, about it. Apparently, uh, there was uh, Casey was very upset, but uh, uh, it was just you know sort of like. Did anybody talk about painting it, lightwashing it, or something crazy like that? Uh, not that I ever heard of. They wanted to you know gothicize yeah. it and stuff. Yeah. And sometimes uh, you just have to live with what you got. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure. George Washington never liked the fact that his front door on Mount Vernon yeah. is slightly off of center. Yeah, I, I bet did. it drove him crazy. Yeah, he was obsessed with symmetry. So yeah, you know, and, uh, but it was apparently architecturally there was simply nothing to do about it. Yeah, it was right. either take it or, or lump it. Right. And so Casey had to lump of this case. And, um, <laughs> so, so was it the tallest building in the world when it was it, when it was finished? It was the tallest building in the world. Amazing. Um, didn't. What did the rest of the world think about this? Was there any commentary? Do we know of any? Like, these Americans have just built the tallest building in the world, and it's this crazy obelisk? Well, I, they've certainly made note of the fact that it was the tallest building in the world. It was the first, I mean, the, the previous record holder had been the Cologne Cathedral, mm. uh, the spires of which reached 515 feet wow. high. Yeah. And so that had been built in the, actually, the, the spires had only been finished in the 19th century. Okay. You know, like a lot of cathedrals, it took 500 right. years to actually build it. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, this was a new thing. And this, remember, this was a time when suddenly buildings were beginning to get taller because of steel construction right. and yeah. because of elevators. Suddenly yeah. buildings could yeah. soar into the sky. And so we had the world's tallest building over and over and over right. and over right. again at this right. era. And actually, the Washington Monument only lasted five years. Oh, and yeah. I, the Eiffel Tower became by far the tallest um, structure. How tall is the Eiffel Tower? It's, ni- it's 300 meters, 900 feet, give or take, yeah. so it was much taller. Mm-hmm. But, of yeah. course, it's just a, a wrought iron. It's not steel. It's wrought iron right. um, skeleton. Yeah. And the, the, a lot of the Parisian in, intelligentsia hated it. Mm-hmm. They thought, what is this thing doing in our beautiful city? What did Americans think of the monument when they saw it? I mean, I guess they're seeing it complete gradually. So. The, the New York Times didn't like it a bit. Yeah. They said at least it's the tallest structure in the world, but this is not worthy of Washington. It's, you know, sort of, Too I can't grand. remember exactly what the Times said, but they, they, were, they were very critical. Hmm. Others just thought it was terrific. You know, they, and I, you know, and it, and it became like the Eiffel Tower. You, you, we cannot today think of Was- or Paris without the Eiffel Tower. Yeah. And, you know, I used to joke that, you know, we, if you were a Martian and came to the Earth and and watched movies about Paris, you would come to the conclusion that every window in Paris looks out on the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Um, and I think, you know, the people love the Washington Monument from the beginning because it's, you know, it's yeah. really impressive. It is. It's astonishing when you're there looking up at it. Um, yeah. And it must have transformed the whole landscape of the mall, right? I mean, because it, when it was originally the mills design, it was the canal there. It was again the what is now Constitution Avenue was a canal. Yeah. And then the the was it the um, the western part of the mall um, was basically swamp. Yeah. Um, and what is now the Lincoln Memorial was in the middle of the Potomac River. Yeah. So it would have been this weird. If nothing had changed, it would have been on this weird hillock, kind of with the swamp and the canal around. Yeah. Well, they originally they plan was to build it the you know the the mall is cruciform you have the Capitol right. one end Lincoln Memorial at the other yeah. the White House and the Jefferson Memorial right. but the Washington Monument is about 300 yards to the east yeah. of that crossing point and the reason was because the crossing point was low and swampy mm-hmm. and the, it would have been impossible in the techni- technology of the time to build a proper foundation yeah. so they moved it to a higher ground 300 yards to the east mm-hmm. and every time I, I see the Washington Monument from the um, perspective of the White House, I always want to say, no, move it over. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe some future emperor of America will move it over, like all those popes tried to move the obelisk. At same well, it, it's one thing to move <laughs> an obelisk that weighs 400 tons. It's another weighs 80,000 tons. <laughs> and you have to glue it all together somehow. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much. So what's next for John Steele Gordon in the publishing realm? What, do you have, what are you working on now? Well, right now I'm another... Um, off the reservation book. I'm writing a book about um, Consuelo Vanderbilt and the Duke of Marlborough. Oh, fantastic. Well, you can flex your royal uh, muscles on this one. Well, yeah, I mean, this is sort of Downton Abbey with footnotes. <laughs> and it was, you know, they were, it was a forced marriage. Um, the Vanderbilts wanted to marry a daughter off to an English duke, yeah. and the Marlboroughs were desperate money. for money. Yeah. And, and so this was purely a commercial transaction, mm. and they hated each other, had nothing in common. Mm. Um, Consuelo was very popular in Britain. Um, J.M. Barry, the author of Peter Pan, said, I would have waited all night in the rain just to see Consuelo Marlborough mm. get into her carriage. Oh, that's I mean, she was a beautiful woman. And um, When was that marriage? 1895. So that's the high point of the uh, yeah, rich this aristocrats. Yeah, this was the, the, the apex of the Gilded American, Age. Uh, American wealth, yeah. And then they got, finally, they would say separated in 1908, and finally when British law allowed divorce, um, they got divorced in the early 20s. Mm. She married um, Louis Balson, who was a famous French aviator, came mm. from a haute bourgeoisie um, mm. family in France. They had the contract to make army uniforms uh, for the French army, mm. which in 1914, 1918 was a very remunerative contract. <laughs> <clears throat> and that was a very happy marriage. Mm. You know, the Duke then married another American heiress, and it was an equally miserable marriage. <laughs> so, and he died in the 1930s. She died, but she lived up until the 1960s. Oh, amazing. Yeah, well, so, it sounds like an extraordinary story. We look forward to seeing that. Next year? This end of this year? Uh, it's due March of 19, uh, 2018. Okay. Well, good luck with that. And uh, thank you so much for spending time here with us today. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank All you right. so much. Good luck in Vail. All right. Thank you. Let's shake on it. <laughs> We're shaking. Okay. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.